Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 6, Extinguished Candle Flame. The year of 1942 always stands out in my memory as my own personal experience of the horror of great darkness. Life had been swinging along in great joy, despite the ever-present physical trials of primitive living. The growth of the work and the delightful friendships it developed for us were sunny experiences. But with the year 1942, life turned a sharp corner. On the surface, I was flung from pillar to post, emptied from vessel to vessel. But those were only what Bishop Hanley Moley calls the outward woes of our inward pilgrimage. Inwardly, I was set for a much-needed crucifixion of the flesh. But to see the picture properly, the outward woes must come first. The Sino-Japanese War had been going on all these years, but we in the South had felt it only as a distant warning bell. But in 1941, the Japanese entered Burma, and before the world's startled gaze, they strode right through the small land as with seven-league boots. We were working the mountains of the hump, right on the China-Burma border north of the Burma Road. At the beginning of 1942, we were utterly unconscious that the Japanese would soon be within sight and sound. Generalissimo Chang had lost providence after providence to them until 1942. He only had three left. Yunnan, Kuaichau, and Sichuan. Of these three, our providence of Yunnan, with its Burma Road and airlift over the hump, provided his only route of supplies. If the Japanese got Yunnan, all China would be theirs. Now as to my inward pilgrimage, there was an area of my life which the Lord has long needed to discipline. It was the area of affections. I have always considered that this was one of my strong points, a deeply affectionate nature. But the very intensity of such love has a danger, the danger of selfish possessiveness. Intense affection wants to hold on to the loved ones and is unconsciously very monopolizing. Since God taught me this truth, I have seen it many times in life. Such a pure love as mother love, if it becomes too possessive, can blight the life of the child. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Galatians 5.42 I believe it is Corningbear who interprets lust as a strong desire. So we may read that verse, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and strong desires. I knew this truth before I came to China, but it was mere head knowledge. I did not know how to recognize it in my own life, let alone know how to deal with it. The time had come when I must learn. So in 1942, there began a systematic stripping away from me, all of whom I loved. First, my husband was called to a conference of superintendents in Chongqing. And from then on, events came in such a world that we were separated most of the year. Next, the Shafu school, where Catherine stayed, was captured by the Japanese, and my little girl was wrapped in silence. Just now and again did a little foolish note slip through to us, proof that she was alive and well. Before that, there had been a letter from her every week. Third, Mary Zimmerman, who acted as our home secretary, duplicating our circulars and forwarding to us news from our friends, fell silent. Her precious mother had been taken home to be with the Lord. And this sorrow was followed by a trial so disrupting that Mary just couldn't keep up her usual correspondence for about a year. Husband, child, friends, 
and then my right hand in the leasuit work left us. It was a very happy reason. Our boy Lucius got married that year and had to set up his own home across the river. But nevertheless, the very comfortable prop he had always been to me was missing. He alone had understood how much it meant to me to have a little corner where I could be private when I had to live in the Lisu home for one or two weeks in order to hold a short Bible conference. To the Lisu mind, it to be left alone was an affliction. They all slept in the same room, two in a bed, and are gregarious about training. They would never dream of so ill-treating a guest as to give her a room to herself. Lucius did not sympathize with this queer desire of mine either, but he had learned that it meant a lot to me. So when we traveled, in a nice way, he would explain to our hostess Mama's queer liking for privacy. With a merry word here and there, he himself rigged up a screen for me, if a room could not be obtained, behind which I could retire to wash and sleep. No other Lisu ever took such care of me. Of course, when I traveled with John, he did that. But now I felt stripped of every comfort indeed. I was not so stupid, but that I saw the stripping was systematic and thorough. Husband, child, friends, and then my right hand in the work. I knew it must be the Lord trying to teach me something, but I was too lonely and heartbroken to submit. Lord, I was made to love and be loved. How can I live without someone that is mine, very specially mine, above the rest around me? I'd rather be dead. So moaned the flesh as it was being set for the crucifixion of its inordinate affections. And with these inner desolations, the outer being was flung far and wide as I was about to relate. The year began happily enough. In February, we held our first Bible school for girls with a success that astonished the Lisu Church, which had always held that women could not learn. It was a triumph and became a yearly event. Then in March, I developed an acute toothache. I tried to pacify it with medicines, but it did not succeed. For it was the Lord himself beginning to spill me out of my nest. The nearest competent dentist was in Kunming, at the other end of the Providence. In the old days, it would mean a 30-day journey. But now with the Burma Road open, it could be done in about two weeks. Even so, it would require two weeks to return. So I would be gone a month or more. The pain soon settled my hesitation, however, and I could not do any work until that rippling ache stopped. So I called for porters to carry my things and escort me out to Pashan. John was at the conference for superintendents in faraway Chungking. I could meet him in Kunming, and we could return together. It planned itself very easily in my mind. As I was about to leave Oak Flat, I received a pleasant surprise. Lucius appeared, announcing he was going to escort me out leading my mule for me over those precipitous and dangerous mountain roads, as it has been his old familiar custom. He was building his new home for, for him and Mary, and Pashan was the best place to buy good nails. He would combine his personal business with the fun of escorting me again. To me, this was really a gift from the Lord, as Lucius was a delightful chatterbox, and his witty, running gossip of church and village life caused the long hours in the saddle to pass quickly. It was also a pleasant source of information of Lisu thinking and customs. I learned much from those hours in the saddle listening to Lucia's talk. Besides this, he was a past master of making Mama comfortable when we camped out at night. We had four and a half days' journey to go, and it used to be six, but the Burma Road had cut, cut it short by that much. March 18th, we started out, so says my diary traveling about 30 miles and camping out at night in a big airy loft over a large horse stable. 
March is the beginning of spring very often in Lisuland. The old winter brown of the mountains is flaked with the light green of bursting buds. The pale pink of the peach trees often dots itself against the bright green and old brown, and the delicate perfume of white rhododendron makes you catch your breath with joy and hunt for more of it. Distant mountain peaks are still snow-capped and dazzling in the golden spring sunshine, and the dear cockatoo bird arrives to tell the lisu, plant corn, plant corn. Boy, as John and I usually call Lucius, chatted happily about his plans and Mary's. And my diary records that while we journeyed, I translated and taught him the course. I'm feeding on the living bread. He loved it, and by the end of the trip, had written it down and ready to teach the brothers and sisters at Olives on his return. We caught a truck at the motor road and so got into Bashan about Saturday, March the 21st. I had been dreading the Burma Road trip. There was no regular bus service to the capital city, Kuming, and the only way to go was by a Chinese merchant truck. Chinese drivers looking for money regularly overloaded their trucks with merchandise, and passengers were piled on top of that. You had to climb on top of all the boxes and bundles and bales and perch there, holding on as best as you could. Often I'd seen such truck trucks with the top actually swaying as the driver saved money and so fetch a few pennies for himself coasted down hairpin curves with the precipitous drops at the edge of the road. And every now and again, you came across the wreck of a truck that had gone over, so you knew your fears were not just imagination. The very thoughts of the Burma Road travel in those days still makes one shudder. But the Lord had an unexpected kindness waiting for me. Note this, because 1942 was a year when he had to give me a much-needed crucifixion experience. Yet if you watch closely, you'll see he was extra kind whenever it was possible. I was told that two of the Generalissimo's airmen of the Flying Tigers were driving in a private car to Kuning and would take me along with them. No Chinese truck travel, but good American drivers. Was that not a kindness? My diary notes casually, Ragoon has fallen to the Japanese. We were to leave at half past five in the morning. So I rose about four o'clock in order to have a quiet time for my devotions. I had been up early so many mornings and traveling till dark that I debated whether or not to skip my quiet time that day and get a little more sleep. But the habit of God first, formed in the moody days, stood in good stead now. Whatever would I have done in those days ahead if I had missed that particular quiet time? For God had something particular to say to me. Yet when I lit my lamp at that early hour and turned my sleepy eyes onto the portion of the day, Genesis 28, I had the feeling. Oh, just the story of Jacob's ladder. Couldn't be anything special in that. Is it the lazy flesh of the devil that puts such thoughts into our heads? I turned my sluggishness over to the Lord in prayer first. And then as I read the old story so familiar from childhood, verse 15 sprang out of the page as if I'd never read it before. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. The Lord's voice came clear and unmistakable. This is my promise to you for the journey ahead. I thought he meant that that dreaded Burma Road travel, and I was grateful. So when Lucius came up to rope my bedding for me, I told him I had received a verse from the Lord and roughly translated it. His face lit up and he beamed at me. Praise the Lord, I will bring you back to this land. He's going to bring you back again. I stared at him. Bring me back. Why, of course I intended to come back. Lucius must have missed the point. But oh, how I had to thank the Lord later that it was Lucius who got the point. 
it was I who nearly missed it. So I started out at the Burma road trip with those two American air pilots. The Flying Tigers were Madame Chang's special prodigies. They were tough but brave, daring men. They were not at all thrilled to have a drab-looking, uninteresting missionary woman tagging along with them, but were considerate and kind, as American soldiers usually are. Just once were we all really embarrassed. At Yanning, there was a hostel, so the men put up there and got a cell for me. There was a lock on the door. Chinese inns seldom possess such, and I locked it, fortunately. For about two o'clock in the morning, a flying tiger arrived drunk. First thing I knew, I was awakened by my door being shaken and pounded until I feared it was flying to bits. At the same time, a drunken voice yelled, Woman, open the door. I want to see the woman. A growl from the nearby cell proved that someone else was awake too, which comforted me. But it did not squelch the drunken ardor. I don't care if she is a missionary woman, he yelled back. I want to see the woman. Woman, open the door. And again, the object was shaken until I quaked and prayed. Curses filled the air as the growler next door saw that he would have to get out of bed to rescue me. And then followed a brief struggle interspersed with yells about the missionary woman. And then finally the drunk was hauled off and shut up somewhere. The flying tigers were very nice to me until I tried to speak of Christ. Then they became hard. They were very tough and wanted to remain tough. And yet they were so kind too. We were four days on the trip and the fourth day the car broke down. And there we were miles from anywhere and are any help and stranded. The American boys could not speak Chinese, so their idea was to wait in the middle of the road and hold up with a gun the first truck they saw and compel help or transportation. They were disgusted with the Burma Road and its drivers. I begged them not to use the guns and offered to interpret, hoping the Chinese language which I had not used for six years would come back to me. After an hour or so of uncomfortable experiences, a white man in a jeep appeared and offered to pick us up did not have room for all our baggage, so I had to leave my bedding roll locked in the back of the abandoned car. The flying tigers, thinking they were still in America, meant to come back and get the car and luggage. But of course, when they arrived, it had been plundered. So I lost my bedding roll and the clothing which was wrapped up in it. I looked forward to the warm, hearty welcome Kay and Dave always gave us. For of course, I planned to stay with my sister-in-law, although the China Inland Mission had a guest house in the capital city. Lonely and feeling ill, I pushed through the gates into the garden, expecting to hear that pleasant yell of welcome as soon as someone spied me. But all was silent. Questioning, I went into the house and called. My voice echoed distantly, but no answer. From the back of the house came a patter of small feet, and soon a rosy-cheeked Chinese maiden appeared. Oh, Ying Xu Mu, she called my Chinese name, but spoke in English to me. The Harrison family are all gone away in the country for meetings. But come in, I will take care of you. It was Ava, who had been left in charge of the house. Ava was the oldest daughter of a Chinese pastor who had a large family. She wanted an education, so had come into the Harrison family to help with housework and cooking while she went to high school. She was a little thing in statue and looked only 15, whereas in reality she was 21 years old. People always thought Ava was a child but she was really a very capable young woman, as I was to learn. Ava was delighted to have company. She had now graduated from high school, which gave her a social status so that she was above the servant class, and it was quite proper to treat her as a companion. My Chinese was so rusty I was pleased to hear her talk English, and she, on her part, was perfectly thrilled to get all English conversation lessons free. So English was our meeting by mutual consent. She soon had me in the Harrison's own bedroom. 
and made me a tasty supper, for dark had fallen before we reached Kunming. It was March the 27th, 1942. I had made it in nine days from Oak Flat, a very good time. Now all those traveling days my tooth had not ached. Please notice that little kindness of the Lord. But I was feeling ill, looked ill, and had dizzy spells. The doctors had quite a time finding out what was wrong with me. But I will explain now so you'll understand. A tooth which held a bridge had become abscessed. As a tooth was dead, it did not ache. That is why the poison was so hard to discover. I had pains in my head, sometimes in my face, but never in that particular tooth. Yet the poison was going through my system, and I was really ill. By the time the trouble was diagnosed and the tooth pulled, gangrene had set in. Our capable dentist said that if I had come to her 24 hours later, my life could not have been saved. It was more than two weeks after I arrived in Kuming that the tooth was discovered, and all that time I was getting weaker and weaker. Alone in the house, except for Ava, I was too ill to study and do much but lie in bed and with plenty of time to brood over my loneliness. All this time, little Ava was a jewel. She would bake the nicest cookies and things to tempt my appetite, and in between meals, she would sit beside my bed and chatter in English. It took my mind off myself, so I encouraged her and drew her on by questions about her life, studies, friends, and so on. As she answered, I began to get a picture of an unselfish, hard-working young life that amazed me. She was quite unconscious of what she was revealing, for she had worked so hard that she never had time for self-consciousness. She was a Christian and a soul of honor. Meticulously careful about honesty, she leaned over backwards to escape the slightest suspicion that she was misusing things that were accessible to her. For instance, the Harrison food cupboard. Every Chinese cook I ever met helped herself freely to lard, sugar, and such things, not to speak of the leftovers. But Ava never touched a thing for herself. I gave her money to buy my food and had not much appetite. To my dismay, leftovers were carefully stored for me. She was one of those souls, rare in any nation, whom money does not tempt. She almost wept with chagrin when I offered her a little gift for her very loving care of me. She was that way all the years I knew her, and I have met few like her in any land. Yet with her freedom from the greed of money, she was a most wonderful bargainer. She was a Szechuan extraction and they are noted for their ability in that line. Ava could get more out of a dollar than anyone ever helped me. In addition to her honesty and industry, she was pure. Of course, she was a daughter of Christians and had spent many years in a missionary home, but that had been true of others who had not her love of purity. I had mixed with young people in those heathen lands, and even in their conversations were purged of usual filthy jokes of heathenism. It seldom reached the plane where a coarse, slightly shady story did not provoke a laugh. I have often been grieved and disappointed at the lack of sensitiveness to the beauty of holiness. But Ava was as chaste as anyone I'd ever met. One of the stories she prattled to me during those days related to a short train trip she had done alone, returning from the village to which the Harrisons had gone. We were late getting in and dark had fallen. The train was so crowded and pleasant that I found a spot all by myself on top of the baggage in the luggage car, but warm and cozy because it was next to the engine. I was enjoying myself there when a man crawled up towards me. Sister, let's play together, he said with an unclean smirk on his evil face. You stay right where you are, I cried out. If you come one foot closer, I'll throw myself down under those train wheels. He saw I meant it, and with a curse he backed away. 
As soon as he was gone, I slid down and went back into the crowded car. The conductor must have seen that man, for he came up to me and, pointing to the fellow, said, Was that the man troubling you? The bad man gave me such a wicked look I was terrified and replied, Oh, no, he would have killed me in revenge if I told on him. People are found in Kuming with knives in their backs all the time. No one knows who has done it. But after that, the Harrisons would never let me travel alone. I thought this little story was very revealing and again conjugated on what a jewel this little Chinese Christian girl was. I had seen Ava in the Harrison household for years, but never realized what a fine character was under that hard-working, childlike form. We're going to stop here and we'll continue it next time. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.